0: Hello, and welcome to Imagine an Apple, the podcast about inner mental experiences. Your hosts are Francis and Vin. So Vin, what, what we got on today?
1: Today, we've got a guest to talk about emotions. And our guest today is Tom, who is a philosopher at Flinders University. And some of his books include The Emotional Mind, A Control Theory of Mental States. Um, welcome to the podcast, Tom.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Thank you for having us so the first thing i want to ask is um the question of your motivation why you you just give us a little bit of a background about um what got you into emotion in the first place
2: yeah so emotions are deeply fascinating i mean anyone who has any interest in living a good life, is going to be interested in the mechanics of that, these mental states that seem to make all the difference between whether we're doing well or doing badly. And you tend to find that the more you explore them, the more you see how complicated and deep and strange and subtle they are. So they're just a perennial source of fascination. Um, and they link to all kinds of other areas, not just in philosophy, but in across all the different uh, areas of human knowledge. So there's there's just no shortage of things that you can get into via the emotions.
1: Brilliant. Um, thank you very much. Uh, before we go into the deep end and start interrogating you about the books, uh, the, the books sure. that you've read, um, I think there's a really common distinction that most people in everyday conversation make between feelings and emotions. And I yeah. remember one of our inter- Twitter interactions involving this very distinction. Um, And that's probably how we first interacted with each other. Um, Is there something that you want to say about that? Is there a distinction that you make, or at least in the literature that you're aware of, between feelings
2: and emotions? Right. It is a very core issue and one that it's very easy to get confused about. So you're right that for most people, emotions and feelings seem virtually synonymous. Um, You ask you do surveys where you say which of these various possible features of emotions are most important or central, and people will point to feelings. So for a lot of philosophers, analyzing feelings is the very nature of analyzing emotions. However, I think the states can be distinguished. So feelings more essentially refer to a conscious state, right? You, you consciously feel something good or bad or itchy or hungry or whatever it might be where emotions tends to be more of a psychological construction in the sense that it's a term we'll use to cover characteristic emotional states like happy, sad, angry, and scared. And so they often point to a more definite functional profile, like they have some sort of input and some sort of output, whereas a a feeling need not particularly have any sort of functional profile. It just feels some way in a very immediate or intrinsic uh, way. Hmm, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. There's more we can say, but yeah, that's just a starting point.
1: Right. Okay. So just to really, uh, short recap, you're saying that sometimes feelings, um, feelings are always felt, uh, IE have, you have conscious access to them and emotions are not necessarily felt and feelings have functional profiles, whereas do not necessarily have functional profiles where emotions always do.
2: Yeah. I think that more or less covers it.
1: Okay, cool. Um, thanks for explaining that. Um, I guess another word that is I see being thrown around around quite a lot and is probably popularized um, by Lisa Feldman Barrett's writings on this matter mm-hmm. is the notion of affect. Um, yeah, I am I'm assuming our listenership is somewhat familiar with her work on right, on affect. Uh, but I was just wondering if there are any similarities or differences between um, your notion of affect and the one that is popularized by her. Like, what is it tangibly?
2: Yeah. So affect, I would certainly put closer to the concept of feeling. It, again, tends to refer to something that we consciously feel and that can be positive or negative. And it's that positive and negative aspect that's really essential to it, which distinguishes it from, say, you know, uh, feeling cold, which need not be either positive or negative, or it could go one way or the other. Uh, but there's been a, you know, a huge confusion about the term affect. Some people, again, treat it as synonymous with emotion uh we also have this word affective states which tends to confuse matter even further and i'm not sure the way that i use affect in my book is entirely uh standard so it's still not something that's very resolved so often when you when you use the term you just have to stipulate okay this is what i mean by affect and let's go on from that point
0: that's quite a relief to know because, I, yeah, I we're struggling to understand the common meaning across different authors. I yeah, think. I don't think so, yeah. we haven't got
2: together and hammered this out, I'm afraid. So you're just going to have to be confused and just see how they define it in whatever text you're
1: engaging with. Right, yeah, that seems to be a common strategy to
2: getting around the literature. Um, I mean, for me, I can well, tell you what I mean by affect, if you like. Uh, for me, it's going to be the intrinsically positive or negative qualities of experience. So basically, the painfulness or pleasurableness of an experience. And you can give a quite um, detailed account of what exactly that involves. But that's, again, not going to be the same thing as emotion. It's often going to accompany emotion. Um, but you can have emotion without affect. And that's something that uh, Barrett will not agree with. I see. Uh, thanks for putting that out. So this... you
1: mentioned positive and negative. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing that has something to do with valence, which you also yep. happen to write quite a lot about.
2: Yeah, I think valence is an easier term because um, at least that's a, that's a psychologically technical term. So it just means positive or negative um, or something that's psychologically positive. You can get various like interpretations of it. Like what exactly is it you're taking to be positive or negative? Is it the quality of an experience again? Or is it something more behavioral like tendency to approach or tendency to avoid? Um, or appetitive, as opposed to aversive, these sometimes get thrown out as well. I tend to take a, a fairly, at least initially, a behavioural notion that it's just the tendency to increase the presence of something means positive valence, and the tendency to decrease the presence of something is negatively valent. So, if you're hungry, then you know food is positively valent for you. You want to get some more of it. And um, if you're, you know, you're hurt, then you know the bodily damage is negatively valent. You want to reduce that. Brilliant. Um, thanks for explaining that. <laughs> Yeah.
0: so, so in, when, when do you use the word affect versus when you use the word valence is there because they seem to overlap quite a lot they're slightly different parts of speech but
2: right so you can have a bodily system like a homeostatic bodily system that you know gets you food or keeps you warm maintains your blood pressure and so on where you don't feel anything conscious at all right so you don't have any intrinsically pleasurable or painful sensations whatsoever so generally i place affect as a higher level sort of psychological function above the more basic valent processes which help to keep us alive
0: so affect has to be conscious in some way yeah Uh, yeah on on the view
2: that i'm promoting and indeed i think that's the the majority view on that
0: so if i have i know low blood sugar and that's negatively valent i might not realize i have and my body might be automatically converting fat into blood sugar for me But then if I get hungry because I've got low blood sugar, then that becomes an affect.
2: Right. So I tend to say that, well, I don't tend to say, I definitely do say that uh, where a negatively valent system fails, so uh, you're hurt and yet you're failing to uh, manage it, you will tend also then to trigger uh, affect as a sort of urgency signal saying, okay, this is really bad. This is really urgent. You need to deal with it. And then symmetrically for, uh, positive affect, so you have a lower level or underlying positively balanced system, you're trying to get something good, you're trying to get whatever it is you need. And then if you're also successful in doing that, so you're noticeably successful, you've managed to acquire this thing, then you get feelings of pleasure. You'll get the uh, intrinsically positively uh, felt affect. So affect, in some sense, is a higher level system for managing all our various low level um, homeostatic or survival maintaining or just generally our emotional uh systems it really helps to um distribute attention according to urgency so you know our body often gets along with all kinds of functions simultaneously without us having to really worry much about it but sometimes it it needs more resources sometimes you need to turn all your attention towards whatever this urgent thing might be you know you're particularly hungry or you're particularly hurt and then affect is going to play a big role there in Getting the conscious person at a person level to uh, really focus their resources on this particular issue, right?
1: So this is really interesting to me because attention is something that um, I believe can be trained, and this is in fact like brought in certain meditative practices, or maybe yeah. uh, experiences of like people under psychedelics uh, or some altered states of consciousness where yeah. their attentions can expand and contract. Um, and because they're voluntarily changing their um the incoming stimulus that they're receiving they're able to pay attention to what would otherwise be um unconscious homeostatic ongoings in the body mm. um, and one example of this is where people are able to notice their heart rate and sometimes even their their breath and their uh, and their blood pressure mm. in ways that allows allow them to like regulate their what um, would otherwise be like unconscious homeostatic processes.
2: Um, Can you speak um, a little bit more about this? I think that is a interesting observation. I haven't really taught very much in my work about our powers of generally increasing intention. I mean, what you're generally referring to is what uh, gets called endogenous attention where you are deliberately um, focusing your attention or, or uh, guiding it towards certain issues. Um, I think it's quite plausible that we can train that capacity. I think it's quite plausible that psychedelics indeed could play a role in manipulating it or possibly even boosting it in certain regards. So it's a very interesting area. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot more about how psychedelics or other sorts of meditative practices can really cultivate our powers over our own minds. Uh, But it's, yeah, it's an area that's... uh, not something I can speak very definitively about at the moment, I think.
1: Yeah, that's fine. All right, let's bring it back to emotions then. So um, in your book, you've kind of layered it in such a way that you talk about valent representation, affect, and then emotions. Um, is there a difference between like valent representation and valence itself? And what do you, um, how do you use those terms?
2: Yeah, valent representation is this very core notion. I mean, it's a, it's a term that I've introduced where I say, okay, at the foundations of the mind we have this thing this system called valent representation and it's basically a way of applying control theory or this notion of negative feedback loops to the mind generally and then my idea is that we can elaborate these valent representations we can create we can get them to interact with each other we can get them to reinforce each other or inhibit each other or one knocks off the next one and so on and so in this way you can construct these quite elaborate systems in which layers of valent representation build on top of each other. So the ultimate claim I'm going for is that literally the entire mind is an elaboration upon the basic system of valent representation. So it's it's a way of trying to ground the mind in these very simple uh, systems of negative feedback and homeostatic uh, regulation, which has um, various attractions in terms of giving you something quite naturalistically plausible and evolutionarily uh, plausible. And it's you know not just me. It's, it's quite a few other researchers in various other fields who are interested in pursuing this general control theory approach to, uh, to the mind. It's quite a powerful approach that I think uh, helps to really open up uh, our understanding of the mind in all, in all these different uh, areas. So I think there's quite a movement uh, going on in that, in that space.
1: So is valent representation uh, another way of phrasing the idea of wanting or desiring?
2: Uh it can include uh, also being averse to things. So in that sense I see. Uh I would say it's closer to the term need mm-hmm. in terms of ordinary language. Mm-hmm. Um so so the most basic valent representations will be your needs, your basic needs. Yeah. Hunger first, and air, and all those kinds of things. Uh, but emotions—I mean, it, it's going to be a very broad category. So emotions also count as a subcategory of valent representation. Uh, social uh, kind of interactions will also fall under this category. Certain, uh, often conscious thought you can link uh, under this category too, in that it's also serving uh, motivational goals and regulative ends. So it really—it's a very, very broad uh, category. So it's, it's kind of more easy to say what, what doesn't count as valent representation. So um, is it
0: kind of anything yeah. with a positive or negative feedback loop, basically?
2: As long as it's in a living creature, yes.
0: Not a thermostat yet.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you're, but you're basically using the model of a thermostat in order to model what's happening uh, in living creatures, and particularly uh, the psychology of living creatures. But at its, at its lowest level, psychology and life are intimately connected. They're almost identical. The, the the bit where it gets slightly different is, is this term representation, right? So representation is a more clearly uh, mentalistic term, this idea that there's something going on inside you, some sort of you know symbolic process or picturing process that stands in place for something going on outside in the world. So that there's a very, very basic problem or issue that we have in uh, philosophy of mind or psychology as well. And that's just, you know, how is it that activity inside your head can get to refer to anything outside the world? I mean, what is this phenomenon in which, you know, something happening inside me is about something happening outside there? And so the appeal to these these negative feedback loops is a way to try and solve that problem to say, okay, the thing that's happening inside your head is, is about the thing that's happening out there in the world because that thing inside your head is getting you to interact in this regulative way with that thing outside in the world, right? So it's getting you to approach, or you know, keep yourself at the right temperature. It's getting you to consume food in the right amount, and and so on. So it's you know, in some ways, it's the most foundational and important notion of valent representation is to try and solve the problem of mental content. Yeah, how on earth do minds get to have mm-hmm. their most fundamental feature, which is this aboutness or intentional uh, nature?
1: Yeah, it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. Um, so- I'm guessing this um reference to aboutness or the question of how we form contents of representation this yeah. is the problem of intentionality um, yeah. I'm guessing yeah. this is the technical term for the for it in the literature
2: yeah and for more than 100 years philosophers have found the idea that intentionality is the mark of the mental that's a pretty good characterization of of what what the mind's about of course there's also this issue about whether there's other aspects to the mind that aren't merely about aboutness uh but that that's controversial i think most philosophers would still accept that intentionality is going to be the core feature of the mind
1: oh okay so that's interesting um just before we go and get back into valence stuff wh- what are some examples of
2: non-intention non- non-intentional action Sorry, So yeah mental action sometimes people refer to mood states as not having any sort of aboutness or just basic sensations perhaps like pain and pleasure um but the standard reply to that sort of claim is that moods just lack a specific object. Um, they're not about, oh, this particular event that's happening right now. They're more generally focused on how things are going for you in the world, but still having representational content. And similarly for pain and pleasure, I mean, I gave an account earlier about how pain is registering a kind of failure and pleasure is registering a kind of success. So again, these these are ways of trying to say, look, these things still have representational content they're just not obvious objects out there in the world
1: mm, right Just this is just making me think about well, oh, so many things at the moment but like let's get back to on track um another thing i've been wanting to ask you is valent control and uh, sorry control theory and how valence and the recent theories about control in mind relate to predictions and the actions being done by altering those predictions so this is more in the vein of the you know active inference yeah. that's being done um can you tell us more yeah, about so, that or if this is something that's worth uh, you know connected to your to your work?
2: Yeah, the the active inference approach is obviously huge. It's um it's it's become quite a dominant idea in contemporary psychology and neuroscience or cognitive science more generally. And yeah, it includes predictive processing as a another version of that term or the Bayesian brain or uh things like that. Um There are points where I want to make contact with that theory and say, okay, my ideas are compatible with it. So particularly when you talk about things like surprise, uh, predictive processing or active inference is a really nice tool for making sense of what's going on there. You know, that we're um, always actively trying to model the world and make predictions about what we're going to perceive. And then surprise is going to occur when that fails right that you get a feedback signal from the world that doesn't match your expectations or your predictions and so they have this notion of surprise all where it's like a matter of degree how much things fail to match your expectation and so i, I like i really like that idea that it's a basic need of creatures like us and probably most other creatures that we uh, we want to know what's going on right so you can fit this into a regular framework where you say okay we're trying to um we're trying to maintain our grip on the world. We're trying to maintain a certain accurate picture, and that can fail. And so that's a, that's a motivating uh, signal or impetus to, you know, go and collect some more information, go and move around, and try to get your predictions more in tune with how things are. So I definitely make contact with the predicting processing view in that sense, particularly in this idea that um, modeling the world is a is a kind of cognitive need. Uh, but I do I do think that. Uh, the control theoretic approach is better in terms of understanding what the mind is about. I think that the active inference or predictive pro- processing approach is very good at getting some of the details of how perception and cognition work. Um, but if you want if you want the broad strokes of how a mind works, I think control theory is the way to go.
1: Right. So
2: now I suppose is about as good time
1: as any to ask, where do emotions fit into all of this?
2: Yeah, I mean... I call my book, The Emotional Mind, because I think that you can't really understand emotions unless you fit them more generally into the mind. And there's a very good reason to think that because of their complexity and their uh, their reach into all these different areas of life, um, there really is no mind without the emotional capacities. They're right there at the center of the mind. But then you can also have a more narrow conception of emotion where you say, okay, I'm not Interested more generally in this kind of evaluative, aversive, appetitive approach. Um, I'm going to. Sp- I want to particularly know what sadness and happiness and fear and those things are. So that's where you might narrow it down and say, okay, so emotions are going to be a particular subcategory of this more valent uh, kind of mental processing. And so my answer to that is, you know, what is this subcategory? Is that emotions are particularly about or triggered by a kind of contrast representation that is. Modeling a, a distinction between how things are going right now and how things are going in some other situation, either in the future or in the past, or for another person, or potentially for a, a different possibility. So, for example, fear would standardly say, like, a bad thing is coming up in the future, and sadness would standardly say that, oh, a bad thing has happened in the past, or a gratitude would be like something. Uh, bad could have happened but actually something good happened instead right so again there's this contrast between how things are and how things could be and then things like the social emotions where um, there's a contrast between you know whether things are going well for you but badly for someone else so that might be uh, the emotion of sympathy or jealousy where you get the reverse right something good's going for someone else when you feel like it should be going on for you Um, and there's going to be all sorts of uh, refinements on that notion but the but for me, the very core idea of emotions, as opposed to things like pains, pleasure, hunger, tiredness, or uh, moods, um, emotions are going to be involving this contrast representation between how things are now and how things in some other state are.
0: So that's super interesting. So all of those require quite a lot of cognitive complexity to so like model a different world in the past, the future, in an alternate reality, and comparing yeah. reality to that world?
2: It's going it's to need a bit more complexity than standard like hunger or pain. So you're going to need an, an animal that's at least capable of memory or imagination and being able to kind of, sort of retain these pictures of things that are not currently present and make a comparison between that and what they are perceiving. Uh, but I think that shouldn't be too demanding. I mean, any good theory of emotion should not exclude um, the majority of the animal species or indeed uh, human infants. So you want something fairly low level. And so I do think that the that the appeal to contrast representation should be available to most animals. Certainly mammals, probably birds, maybe some lizards, you know, or reptiles, uh, but maybe not insects, right? So I mean, that's that's pretty vague. But um, you're you're trying to I mean, just when you're constructing a theory, you're trying to say, okay, yeah, this is the kind of thing that could fit uh, plausibly various other creatures, right?
1: So one thing I'm interested in is. Um this hierarchy that i sense is developing where you have emotion uh, we have the basic needs that some Mm -hmm. most animals have and then emotions which only animals with more sophisticated cognitive capacities have and then you mention the social emotions um and i'm sure you're familiar with this term meta emotions as well is there a similarity um between these two things are they referring to the same thing or uh, are you
2: using them differently um so just on meta-emotions, yes, yeah, certainly. So any, anytime you have an emotion, about an emotion, uh, we'd call that an, a meta-emotion. A meta um, I don't think you need particularly special uh, theory to deal with meta-emotions, but I do think that pretty much any emotion regulation process where you, you, you know, you're you self-consciously uh, monitoring and then acting on your emotions, that would count as a meta-emotional process. Um, so I link that particularly with some of our more conscious uh, thinking Strategies. Um, I think the social emotions are a definite level beyond uh, our regular emotional capacities. Um, of course, we have these terms, you know, these social emotional terms like embarrassment or guilt. Um, so I do, I do think yes, you need quite uh, another level of mental sophistication in order to be capable of social emotions. Uh, but the way I like to talk about social emotions is that they're not necessarily just like these these particular categories like uh, guilt or embarrassment there's just a layer of sociality that you can add to any emotional state where the emotion becomes part of a social negotiation. So my anger in part will have this expressive component that might be uh, functionally aiming to, you know, signal to others that, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this state and that I'm owed some sort of response from them as a result. Uh, so, So, you know, or you know, even basic uh, fear responses or sadness responses typically have an expressive component where they're often directed at you know achieving some sort of response from other people. I mean, that's why infants cry, right? To to get some kind of response from their caregivers. So the sociality is, is definitely a layer of emotion that gives it this extra uh, functionality, and it's you know virtually every human emotion has a sociality or social aspect. Uh, to it but there will be again there'll be animals that don't have that sort of social um, aspect to their emotional states but still having emotions all the same
1: right that's really fascinating I mean this idea of sociality I can see why this would be really relevant to our moral decision making um, and how emotions play a vital role in regulating our behavior Um, is there uh, so in this idea of like emotions making being a primary regulator of our social interactions and moral interactions that kind of implies that we have to deal with our identities. We bring our identities when we negotiate with with um, people who we have who we can have um, the reactive attitudes, as strawson mm-hmm. puts it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if identity plays a role in emotional regulation, or if it's the other way around, or if it's more like a, a you know continuous feedback loop between the two.
2: So certainly, when you establish a relationship with another person, it's important that you can identify that person over time. That's the very same person I was interacting with yesterday. Um, And maintaining those relationships does require a a level of thought where you can say, okay, this person exists from time A to time B to time C. um, And I can see how they're developing over time. So in that sense, identity is heavily involved. Yeah, you, you can't really have certain kinds of interaction with people unless you unless you have a very strong notion of their identity. And, you know, reciprocally, they have a notion of your identity. Um, I think that our our social interactions at that level, where it's not merely some random person is angering me, but my partner or my child, um, that requires yet another layer of sophistication. Um, I, I, t- I like to use the term sentiments to apply to these more long term um emotional uh, interactions with people or emotional relationships with people. Basically things like what you love and what you hate. Yeah. So if I, if I love my child, then I'm going to have a whole variety of emotions that track how things are going for them. I'm hopefully going to be feeling sad when they're sad and happy when they're happy. And I'm going to have all kinds of emotions um, aimed at promoting their well-being, not just my own, or perhaps the way to put it is to say that uh, my well-being and theirs are linked in some deep way, uh, and what what's kind of interesting about social relations is also that it, yeah it does apply this sort of demand upon your emotions that they can say look the reason for you to regulate your emotions is in order to preserve this relationship. So you know when you're talking about the moral cases and where people are having to restrain themselves and to forego various advantages that they might uh, otherwise accrue, um, the idea that someone else can demand upon you oh. For the sake of this relationship, you need to you need to not be greedy, or you need to uh, be brave, or you know you need to clean up your act, whatever it might be, right? Um, I think that I think that's a very interesting uh, sophistication that I would only really attribute to humans, May, maybe certain very social animals as they're well. The higher primates. Yeah, but I'm also thinking like maybe dogs can genuinely love you and regulate their emotions because they're they're just so um, they're just so attuned in that way. Uh, Not cats, but just dogs. (laughs) Uh, Cats, cats just don't have the brain for it. I think. Uh, You know, lovely that they are, but um, they're just not so clearly like uh, in that sort of relationship. And so, yeah, I mean, in terms when you when you talk about things like character and virtue and um, moral responsibility, yeah, you're talking about the capacity to regulate emotions um, according to these sorts of demands that you get from others.
1: Cool. So the next question I want to ask is. Um, what are some of the different ways that people might experience emotion? Uh, So can you maybe perhaps speak about the phenomenology of it and how Mm -hmm. different people might experience it differently?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think what you're referring to might be this idea that some people seem more oriented towards their bodily feelings than other people. Some people are just more sensitive to the feelings of their body and they, they often think of their emotions in those terms where others tend to be a bit more situationally attuned and they'll often decide what emotion they're having according to how they're interpreting the situation. Like, Oh, this is a situation in which someone's insulting me. Therefore I'm angry. Whereas the more internally attuned person might be, Oh, I'm feeling this, this, you know, my heart pumping and my tension and my muscles, therefore I'm angry. So I do think we see this, this difference in people's focus. It's not that either camp is lacking the, um, the area of emotion that the one is more sensitive to it's just it's just a difference in emphasis more than anything else um, but it it is responsible for certain um, debates in the theories where people some people some philosophers or theorists will say oh what's really important to emotion is the situational awareness another philosopher's like oh no what's really important is the bodily awareness and i'm like hey guys you know you, you can both be right it's just there's different aspects to emotions right i can yeah. see
1: why there would be a debate about this because if you emphasize the bodily aspect it's more internal whereas if you emphasize the situational aspect then the cause of your emotions is more external it's the other person who's doing it yeah and i can see how this might perhaps bring up issues of responsibility who's responsible for my anger Mm. is it just me who should be able to like regulate it or is my
2: anger just because it's coming
1: as a response towards um,
2: an insult or injury yeah it will definitely suggest different regulative strategies like how's what's the best way for you to deal with your emotion is it to try and calm your body down and or you know maybe take some chemical that's going to change your bodily uh, response profile or is it to do something about this situation, to get out of that situation, or f- find a different situation to be in? Um, yeah, that's, so it's, it's definitely gonna be relevant uh, in those contexts.
0: When you say situational here, do you mean like hearing something in your inner voice about the situation, that kind of thing? No, no, um... I mean I mean
2: just the literal situation. So, you know, man running at you with a knife, that's a situation, right? Or, uh, you know, someone's insulted you, that's... A... Uh, but it, it can sometimes be indeed, yeah, that your emotion is directed at your own body, right? The, uh, you know, you're frustrated about your incapacity and task and you might go, oh, I, blood. Oh, you know, I hate these, are uh, rubbish parts right. of my body, whatever it, it might means.
0: just be, you're aware that you're frustrated about it, but you're not, it's not a specific bodily feeling. So you're aware of the concept that you're frustrated almost.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there, you're getting into this idea that you can conceptualize your own feelings, right. That you can look at those feelings and go, okay. Yeah. That's the pattern that fits frustration. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, emotions can really direct to almost anything at all you can have an emotion about anything you like even very abstract physics right so emotions is it's more just a way of representing the world or representing what's going on and saying, okay it's going in this kind of good way or it's going in this bad way right
0: yeah because uh, i'm certainly aware so people experience emotions in all sorts of ways like some people see particular colors for certain emotions or mm-hmm. certainly an emotion can bring back a specific memory um, Yeah. There's a bunch of different inner experiences you can have when you experience an emotion. Um, is that relevant, or is it kind of just depend contingent on the kind of emotion and the kind of way the person's mind does the, you, does these things?
2: Yeah, I mean, people can have all sorts of associations with emotions. Of course, our color our color terms are heavily linked with emotions, and there's interesting cultural differences in how people associate colors with emotions. Uh, the institution I used to work at in Geneva we had some of our promotional material that was um, referencing this idea that, you know, in France, blue doesn't necessarily mean sad. It means a different, uh, something else. I can't remember the particular associations, but it, it's a quite an interesting idea. Uh, but yeah, also, I think what you're starting to get at is the way in which um, our emotions can be elaborated using these sorts of expressive qualities. So the way that you dress or the environments that you are uh, sitting in, Uh, these can have emotional connotations for you that are really quite powerful and can definitely play an important role in you uh, maintaining your emotional life. So this is something that comes under the uh, umbrella of what's called extended cognition, Um, this idea that by uh, manipulating your environment, you can achieve uh, mental functions. And so um, I thought this is one of the, the things that I first did when I was starting to be a work in philosophy was to think about the way we use music to uh, quite deliberately extend our emotional states or to enhance our emotional capacities. Uh, It's, it's quite an interesting um, area. I don't actually talk about it that much in the book because it sort of comes at the very end. Um, But it it was one of the things that got me into uh, this area. Uh, Particularly, yeah, the connection between music and emotion.
0: Because I've had that in both directions. I've recalled songs because I'm feeling an emotion and realized mm-hmm. from the song that it was that I must be having this emotion.
2: Uh-huh. Um, right, well you way could way. find yourself whistling a certain tune and go, oh, wow, that indicates something about how I'm feeling.
0: Yeah, this extended,
1: I, uh, this notion of extended cognition, um, I suppose I imagine it more simply as uh, being able to write down your thoughts and then being able to communicate that to other people with this like psychotechnology, if you will. And um, yeah, other people i mean, reading this.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one way to extend your cognition. I mean, the, uh, some of the very first examples where extended cognition was introduced in the 1990s had to do with things like keeping a diary uh, as a way to extend your memory capacity. But also, people talk about how you can think through on paper, right? By kind of talking through it to yourself, you can help to develop, you know, actually, what do I feel about this? Uh, but there's all sorts of ways you could do it. You could do it by painting, you could do it by uh, playing music. Um, yeah, you can do it by dancing around. There's there's a there's no limit really to the way that we can make these sorts of emotional um, connections.
1: Right, brilliant. Um, I think we're close to about wrapping this up, but I want to ask you about some of the maybe the science behind um, emotions and what sorts of uh-huh. experiments that let has led to us knowing about these emotion uh, emotions slash affects.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big field. Um, or is that so not Some with...
0: favorite ones that you know about, might be that you find it found interesting or revealing.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the most interesting ones goes all the way back to William James. And it's this idea that um, by deliberately expressing an emotion, you can arouse that emotion, right? So it's it has a quite Victorian style in the way that he, he talks about, like how you can s- smooth the brow and straighten your back and put on a smile and then you'll be feeling happy, right? So this is uh, this became known as the facial feedback hypothesis. This idea, yeah, you can deliberately stimulate emotions by means of manipulating your bodily or facial expressions. And then lots of evidence was accumulated in favor of this idea. It looks really, really robust. But then uh, you know, ten years ago, it was one of the the experiments that got caught up in the replication. Crisis. So there was a particular experiment where they got people to hold a pen between their teeth and therefore force themselves to smile, or hold it between their lips in a certain way that forced a frown, and then it would affect the way they were they were rating the funniness of cartoons. And they found that when they rep- tried to replicate this in a you know a more robust way, that it, it was failing. So this was a big worry. Like, is this really important emotional phenomenon? Uh, not in fact the case. So my impression is that. Uh, it's probably less significant than we thought it was but I'm, I'm I still find myself uh, pretty convinced that by deliberately manipulating our bodily states we can arouse the associated and that it is a pretty good clue that emotions have this uh, essentially bodily nature to them that they are in part bodily uh, phenomenon but yeah it's, it's it's precisely those one of those cases where you um, you'd want the social psychologists to really figure it out what the hell's going on. And uh, you know, whether there's different experimental paradigms where this thing works or what kind of variations might be going on.
0: So that's a very artificial experiment and it's very different from I don't know, when people say, go out in the fresh air and the, uh, and you'll feel happier. And it feels like that is the case. But
2: well, that's yeah, such just...
0: different experiment from sticking a pen in your lips. <laughs>
2: yeah. They have to find ways to, um, trick people, right? So that's what the psychologists are all about. You need to try to manipulate people without their awareness. But I do think in this case that you can perfectly consciously manipulate your bodily condition and it will start to uh, create aso- emotional associations for you. Um, you might then embrace those associations or you might reject them, right? So consciousness, conscious awareness of the technique tends to complicate matters. But I do think this is one of those techniques that does work with conscious awareness.
0: Um, any other questions of experiments that immediately come to mind from that you reference in your book or
2: uh i mean this the only other one that comes leaps to the top of my mind is these studies about uh consciousness of emotion so you know it's it's a it's a very tricky question to answer like whether emotions are essentially conscious states uh but there's a there's a nice experiment by uh i think it's Winkleman and Beridge, where they are they're flashing up pictures of emotional faces so quickly that people don't consciously recognise that they've seen those faces, and yet you are then seeing certain differences in their behaviour as a result, which indicate that they are feeling some emotion. Uh, but what's what's really interesting is that you can then ask them, you know, are you having an emotion right now, or you know, what what are you feeling? And they, they don't report anything, and so you're seeing these very subtle behavioural effects, which indicate look like you know they're having an emotion, but they're not aware of uh, this happening to them. Uh, and so you know that's that's a very important piece of evidence if that indeed uh, is robust
0: so you're not completely sure if they replicate
2: you literally can't be sure of anything in this area right? okay. we've had too many, too many disasters uh, and failures of these things yeah right.
0: do you think it's something we can get better at like as the whole of humanity at doing these kinds of experiments
2: yeah i mean you know do more science the solution is not to give up it's just to keep doing it and do it more carefully
0: right so obviously, there's an intimate link
1: between psychology, science and like philosophy as when it comes to emotions. Um, why did you approach emotions from this philosophical perspective as to becoming a psychologist
2: and studying it that way? I mean, that's partly just my background. I did a degree in philosophy because I wasn't just interested in the mind. I was interested in the whole universe. Um, and, and the lovely thing about philosophy is that you can flit from one area to another uh, quite happily where a psychologist will be bogged down in following certain experiments uh, over many, many years. So I, d- I did find that once I was trying to get serious about how the mind works that I'm reading a lot of psychology and I'm reading a lot of neuroscience and trying to get to grips with how they model things. Um, so I, I certainly don't want to do any philosophy independently of uh, psychological research. Um, I think it's absolutely essential to what we're doing in philosophy in this area particular, in particular. Um, but, you know, sometimes... Philosophy has the advantage that it allows you to think a bit more broadly and sometimes a bit more deeply about, okay, what are the, you know, the basic principles of the mind that are at work here? And, you know, sometimes the psychologists, they're just moving from one puzzle to the next. They're not really taking the time to think about how all this stuff is supposed to fit together. And that for me, you know, part of what makes this area interesting is that you are, you know, we can build these quite big pictures of how the mind works.
1: Right that i guess a uh, big picture approach is what you're all about and yeah. i think that should be a pretty good place to to end this um uh since we're coming up to the 15-minute mark now but where can people find your work um you have a book and you have a twitter
2: um is there yeah, any I, other I have place a website can... where you can download pretty much everything i've ever written so no one should ever ever be wanting to read something i've written and not able to do so if they want to read it they should always just email me and ask uh and in general you know researchers like to be contacted by people who are interested in their work so don't feel shy always get in touch wonderful right
1: um, any last uh thoughts and words uh francis
0: yeah we'll link in the show notes to lots of tom's things he's got a lot of content online about this it's really good cool cool right thank you very much yeah thank you thanks tom that was fantastic